Let's turn to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your loving care for us, your very detailed attention to the needs in our lives. Lord, that you desire relationship with us. And as we look at this amazing chapter in your word, we pray that you would open up our understanding to who you are for the plan that you have for our lives, that you would help us to see your design for marriage. We ask that you would send your Holy Spirit. We invite your Holy Spirit to do a fresh work in our hearts and our lives. And as it's been a long day, as we've been pressing through work and getting from place to place, and for those that have kids, getting their children here, Lord, we put our attention upon you. We draw near to you for the purpose of hearing from you tonight, God. Would you pour out living water? Would you pour out refreshment upon us? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You'll see in Genesis chapter 2 that there's several of God's actions, things that God has done for us. And those actions then meet our needs and form our identity. These first few chapters of Genesis are so, so important. They're major, major, major. I can't emphasize how important they are for how we understand who God is and also understanding who he has made us to be. So let's look in verse 1 of Genesis 2. Thus the heavens and the earth and all the hosts of them were finished. So chapter 1 gives us the overarching look of God's creation. Then when we get into chapter 2, we see God zoom up in close-up detail. It's like if you take a picture on your phone and then you zoom in to see more detail. Chapter 2 gives us more detail of God's creation of Adam and Eve. In verse 2, and on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all of his work, which he had done. Then the Lord blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all of his work, which God had created and made. Six days of creation, then the seventh day, God stops. There's a pause. Imagine you're driving down the road, you're listening to the radio, and then all of a sudden, boom, there's, there's a pause. You've got your podcast that's playing, and it should be continuing to go, but all of a sudden, there's a pause. And God pauses, he rests, he stops working on the seventh day. Now, what is the seventh day? For the Jewish calendar, the seventh day begins Friday as the sun goes down and ends Saturday as the sun goes down. The first day of the week is Sunday. That's the way it is currently in the, the nation of Israel. So the seventh day is Saturday. And God set it apart. He sanctified the seventh day for a Sabbath rest. Now, why did God rest? Was he tired? It's like, oh man, I got to work out. I just spoke all this stuff into existence. I, I really need some rest here. God's not weary. He's not tired. He doesn't need a rest or a nap in the way that we need rest. The reason that he rested is he's giving us a pattern to be able to follow. Maybe you're not one for resting. Maybe you're one that says, I can really go 24-7 then you really have to argue with God because God rested. There's something about rest that it's not just about our need for rest, 
but it shows dependency upon God. When we work seven days a week, we're saying, I really need to make every moment count, and I can't afford to be able to rest. But when we rest, it puts trust and dependency upon God. For the children of Israel, this became a command of God to rest on the seventh day, to rest upon the Sabbath. One of the reasons that God took the children of Israel and put them into bondage for 70 years is because they neglected the Sabbath. And God said, this was to be a testimony to the rest of the world that you belong to me. That's how common it was for all of the nations of the world to work 24-7, just like we do. What was different about the people of God is that they were to rest. And they were to display God, respect God in that way and in that fashion. The rest that we see in the Sabbath day, it ultimately points to Jesus. It's a shadow of Jesus, Colossians chapter 2 tells us. So a shadow is something that represents the reality, right? When we're embracing a loved one or a friend, we embrace the person, we don't embrace the shadow. So the rest in one particular day points us to the rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. To where when you trust Jesus as your Savior, you're not striving for his acceptance, not trying to earn his favor, but because of what Christ has done, we're at a place of rest. We're seated with Christ in the heavens. We're not held to the Sabbath day in the same way as the children of Israel. It doesn't have to be on the seventh day. You can choose. Okay, I think I can rest on Monday. Monday's going to be my Sabbath day, but that principle is there for us to take one day a week to stop, to pause, to rest, to reflect upon the Lord those things that are important in our lives. So God rested. This is an action. You'll see a verb. God, God rested. He did something on the seventh day. He sanctified the seventh day and set it apart to meet a need in our lives. Jesus said this in Mark chapter 2. He said, the Sabbath was made for man and not the man for Sabbath. So God created the Sabbath for man. He created it for us because he knew that we needed rest, not the other way around, not some religious observance of the Sabbath day. Now, having said this about rest, are we going to change anything? Are you going to do anything different? Am I going to do anything different? Are we going to be moved by God to say, I need to take time to rest. I need to take time to pause and enjoy the Lord. I don't have this mastered. I don't think that I ever will. But I am learning, due to this sabbatical that I took this summer, that there's a different pace of life that the Lord wants to lead me on. And I'm better with the Lord, I'm better with my family, I'm a better pastor, I'm better all around if I honor the Lord by choosing to be able uh, to rest. That by being busy, that's not necessarily being effective, if we're going 24-7, ultimately, we're not going to be as effective as the Lord intended. Church, your body is going to get rest one way or the other. We can either choose to honor the Lord and do it on a pattern of once a week, or we can blow through this warning, blow through this instruction, put our foot to the accelerator all the time, and eventually you'll burn out. And your body's going to shut down, your body's going to get sick, your body's going to have a nervous breakdown, you're going to have a moral failure because you're so tired, right? 
Some of you guys are so tired just by this message and we're only five minutes in. I don't even have your attention, right? You're somewhere else, right? Like I need some rest from this preacher guy, right? We're running ourselves ragged and we wonder why and to allow the Holy Spirit to bring us to this new pace of life to say, wow, God rested. He took an action and he rested on the seventh day so that I can rest in him. And verse four, this is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Before any plant of the field was in the earth and before any herb of the field had grown, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth, nor was there no man to till the ground, but a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. It seems to be prior to the flood that there was a different atmosphere, a different ozone layer, to where there wasn't the need for rain, but water just came up from the earth and watered all of the plants. And this was in place even before God created the plants and even before God created Adam to take care of the garden. We see at the end of verse 6, it says, a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the earth. So first God rested, but now it says that God watered. And God is continuing to water our souls, isn't he, through his word, through the Holy Spirit. We see his loving care in these actions where God is taking care of creation through watering and he takes care of our souls through watering us through his word. In verse seven, and the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. So this is specific with Adam and God creates Adam in a different way then he created everything else. He speaks everything else into existence, but here we see God formed man out of the dust of the earth and then breathes into him. So we have God rested, God watered, God formed, and God breathed. The ground is very ordinary, isn't it? When we think of the dirt, it's a, an amazing substance, but it's a very common substance. And yet when God places his hand upon it, he makes something that's very extraordinary. He creates man. He creates Adam in his own image. He breathes into Adam, and then Adam becomes a living being. God didn't breathe into the rest of creation in the same way. So God's actions show our need, our identity, our identity as being made in God's image is that he formed us. He formed us uniquely and he breathed in us. We, we bear the breath of God. Now, one of the things that's interesting when you look at God breathing is the Hebrew word ruah is translated into the English word spirit. So the Hebrew word is ruah and it means breath, wind, spirit. When you use the Hebrew word, you could be thinking of the wind, you could be thinking of breath, or you could be thinking of the Spirit of God. So the idea of the Holy Spirit is breath. As God is breathing into Adam to give him being, it's also pointing to the Holy Spirit. When Jesus rose from the dead in John 20, he's with the disciples, and it says that he breathed on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, 
Remember, Holy Spirit is very closely linked to, to breathe. So, so Jesus breathes on them and they receive the Spirit of God and they become the temples of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God lives in them in a new covenant relationship. So the whole point is when God breathes, we have life. When God breathed into Adam, he had physical life and that's to be cherished. And when God breathes, spiritually, there's new life. When the Holy Spirit moves in our lives, we're born again. When the Holy Spirit moves in our lives, we come to greater understanding of who Jesus is. God continues to move in our lives through the power of the Spirit. In verse 8, then God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. So now God plants. He planted. We see him doing things. After he forms and he breathes, he plants and gives this amazing garden for Adam and Eve to be able to, to dwell in. This shows the loving care of God. He wants them to have this wonderful place to be able to live, to raise a family, to have fellowship with God. We know the story, don't we? We know that also in this garden, they sin. They choose to disobey God. And because of that, they have to get kicked out of the garden. God doesn't want them living eternally in this sinful state, eating from the tree of life. So this leads to another garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus submitted himself to the plan of the Father. He said, not my will, but your will be done. Is under such agony that he sweats blood. And as Jesus surrendered in the Garden of the Gethsemane to go to the cross, our sin was paid for so that we could be welcomed into a later garden. Remember the end of Revelation, Revelation 22? We see a garden with a river flowing through it and the tree of life, heaven, everlasting life. So God has always been depicting his plan of fellowship with us in this garden that he planted. Imagine how wonderful the Garden of Eden was. The fellowship that they had with God that was not impaired by sin. And we look forward to the Garden of Heaven when we'll be eating of the Tree of Life in glorified fellowship with God. In verse 9, And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The Tree of Life was also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So God's ca causing these trees to grow, and there's pleasant food. It's good to look at. It's pleasant to eat. It tastes good. The tree of life, which is eternal life, is in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we'll talk about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil more in just a minute. In verse 10, Now a river went out of Eden, to water the garden. So God put in built-in irrigation. And from there it parted and became four river heads. So one river in Eden that then spread out to these four different rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one which skirts the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellum and the oxen stone are there. This is possibly Eastern Arabia, but we don't know for sure. But we'd sure like to know where this river is. There's a lot of gold here. The gold rush is uh, taking place. In verse 13, the name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one which goes towards the whole land of Cush. Cush is thought to be near the Mesopotamian region. 
The name of the third river is Hidelka. It is the one which goes towards the east of Assyria. The Hebrew word for Tigris. Hidelka is the Hebrew word for Tigris. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. And there's many ancient cities located on the Euphrates. So out of the Garden of Eden comes these four rivers. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and to keep it. Another action of God. God plants this garden and then he says, okay, Adam, I want you in the garden and your job is to tend it and to keep it. And church, we understand a lot about God and a lot about who we are just from this verse. God could have created things in such a way that they were sustaining without the participation of Adam for no work for Adam where he didn't have to tend it, he didn't have to keep it. Now remember, sin hasn't entered the world yet. There isn't the curse of sin. And God in a perfect state is giving work for Adam to do. What's your understanding of work? Is it just the curse aspect of work? I owe, I owe, so off to work I go. I hate work, I hate life. It's Groundhog's Day, I gotta do it all over once again. Even though we're experiencing the fallen aspect of work, there is a redeemed, glorified aspect of work. God in and of himself works. And so creating us in his image, he gives us the opportunity to work as well. Work will not be absent in eternity. In heaven, we're going to be ruling and reigning with Christ. He's going to have things for us to do. Now let's get a little bit more specific about this is this is directed towards who? It's directed towards Adam. Eve is not on the scene yet. She's going to be created in, in just a moment. So we get a little bit of an idea of what God's plan is for biblical manhood. That God is calling men to be worker providers. Now this isn't saying that women don't work because, man, that would be blasphemous. You ladies work so hard. But the responsibility of the worker, provider, protector is given to Adam. And men, this is, I think, important for us to know. And you see this that's played out through all of Scripture. If you're married and you have kids, that God puts the burden upon us, and it's really a blessing to make sure that our wives and kids are, are cared for, to work hard on their behalf. In 1 Timothy 5, verse 8, it says, but if anyone doesn't provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So God's very strong in how he feels towards this. Now let me clarify, if you're not able to work, you say, man, I would love to be able to work, but for this reason and, and that reason, I'm not able to. I don't have the physical health to be able to work. That, that's one thing. Don't feel condemnation in, inside of that. But if God has given us men an able body and there's a need inside of our family and we have the opportunity, someone's willing to hire us, then it's our responsibility to go to work. And obviously, if you're married, your wife comes alongside of you in this and it's a team effort. But at the end of the month, it's not the wife's responsibility to figure out how the bills are going to get paid 
ultimately that falls upon us as being that worker, that provider, that protector. And to be able to look to the Lord and say, okay, God, this is how you've engineered biblical manhood to look. Now, inside of manhood, you've got a variety of spectrums. You know, and manhood's not necessarily like swinging an axe and shooting stuff. Now, guys, if you like swinging axes and shooting stuff, I get you, right? But you can be a strong biblical man and not necessarily enjoy shooting stuff. Shooting stuff doesn't define biblical manhood as much as we would like it to. It's like, well, God, I can shoot. It's like, yeah. It's like, well, good for you, buddy. How you doing at taking care of your family, right? How you doing at being a a worker provider? So in this spectrum of, of manhood, Look at the roles, look at the responsibilities. And what I would want us to be is open-minded to what the scriptures say about how God has designed us in these roles that he's given us inside of the family. Now, would we say marriage and the family are broken in our culture? Would we say our culture has it right when it comes to marriage and family? No. If we want God's best and his blessing inside of our marriages and family, to go back to his word and to look at this and say, is there a reason God gave this to Adam before Eve was created? And if so, is there some responsibility that's consistent through scripture where God desires for men to be workers and providers uh, for their family? Men, I want to commend you. I think that we have some amazing godly men inside of our church where you're working hard in behalf of your families And the world would want to beat you up and society would want to beat you up. But God sees your labor of love that you're being faithful to the Lord and working hard to provide for your families. There's a lot of things that are being written now about a radical Christian life. And I like those things that are being written. But a radical Christian life does involve providing for your family. (laughs) That's radical. Working hard to make sure that your family is provided for That is honoring to the Lord in a radical way. Verse 16. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you may not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die, because sin will enter in, and sin brings death. So God's done all these things. Plants the garden, waters the garden forms Adam, breathes into him, rests, all these actions, and now God commands. He gives his first command. Stronger than an instruction, it's no, you need to obey this, you need to follow it. And notice in the command, you have an all-you-can-eat fruit buffet in verse 16. Of every tree of the garden, you may freely eat. Just, Just go for it. There's no limitations here. When we think of God's command... We oftentimes only think of what they can't do. You can't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But how about the tree of life? Go for it, right? How about all these other trees that are, that are amazing? And when we oftentimes think of God's commands to us, we can think they're limiting. But we need to focus on all the freedom that it brings in our lives. This really stood out to me this afternoon. Who's this command directed to? It's directed to Adam. Eve is not even created yet. But God looks at Adam and says, Adam, I've commanded you 
that you should do this, that you shouldn't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So just like God's created Adam to be a worker provider, he's also created him to be a spiritual leader. God's handed that over to him and saying, look, I want you to care for your future family spiritually. Who's going to carry this command to Eve and share God's heart with Eve? It's going to be Adam. Now, for many of us guys, we hear this and we go, I'm down with the worker provider thing, but the spiritual leader thing, that really freaks me out. Like, what does that even mean, that I've got to be a spiritual leader? One, I think we lead from a place of humility. We don't lead from a place of, I've got it all figured out, or I've arrived. If we're waiting for that to happen, we'll never lead in our homes. Amen? Right? So it comes from this understanding of the gospel. It comes from this understanding of grace. And to pursue a relationship with God and foster that and encourage that in our homes. That it's not just our wives saying, hey, we need to get to church. That it comes from us going, hey, babe, let's get to church. It's so good for us to be in God's house. It's so good for us to be in fellowship. That the kids know, hey, this is dad's standard that we're going to go and worship God together. This isn't a mom thing. This is, mom's not on her own on this, on an island. This is something that is important uh, to me. I don't know really how my dad instilled it in my mind, but I firmly believed if I didn't go to church that I may not be able to live in their house. (laughs) Now, he never said that. He never like flat out said, Eric, if you don't go to church, I'm gonna, I'm gonna kick you out. But it was him holding that line for a lot of years when I didn't wanna go to church to say, hey, look, this isn't gonna be a discussion in our house. You're going to church. And I don't care if you like it or you don't like it. And a lot of people now would say, well, that would fuel rebellion, right? If you force your kids to go to church, they're, they're, they're gonna rebel, Right? But my dad had this conviction as the spiritual leader in our home to say, look, this is something that God has led us to do, that it's going to be important for for us uh, to do. Be that one that initiates worship to say, we're going to be at church, worship in the home. Just like we're doing here on a Wednesday night to simply read the scriptures and explain it, that can be done inside of our families. Say, hey, one night a week, let Let's read the scriptures together. Let's go through Philippians together. Let's go through the gospel of Mark together. Let's read a few Psalms together. Share what God is teaching you. I think that's the most effective as we're reading as men in the scriptures and something stands out to us, that we would read it, that we would share it. Say, man, this is what the Lord has has spoken to me to endeavor to live out what we teach. And when we fall short to admit that in front of our families, that's great spiritual leadership. That shows our our kids and our wives that this is real and I'm going to fall short. I want to own it before God and those that I have affected. But God gives this instruction to Adam. He commands it to Adam, showing that he's the spiritual leader. Guys, I got so much in here, I just got to feel like I need to go really fast. I'm going to fight that urge. Verse 18. And the Lord God said, it's not good that a man should be alone. I'll make him a helper comparable to him. We're going to look at five lessons in marriage as God 
now creates the first marriage. And the first one is this. It's not good that man should be alone. Can I get an amen? It's just not good. So I moved here to Colorado Springs when I was 21, just before my 22nd birthday, to be the youth pastor here at RMC. I landed at my cousin's house in town for a week and then rented an apartment just right up the street uh, from the church. And that was the first time that I didn't rent a room from some other guys and have, have roommates and those type of things. I was kind of over that by that point. So it was just me and my man cave. It was disgusting. Like, looking back, it was just gross. You'd open up the refrigerator, and like, stuff had died in there and rotted in there, and I'm like, whatever, <laughs> you know, like, guess I'll eat out again tonight, right? The bathroom was like a bomb went off in there. It's like, why didn't I clean the stinking toilet? You know, it's like just nasty. I had this old red recliner. There's like license plates on the wall, barbecue out on the deck in this little one-bedroom apartment. And I was, I was living. I was like, yeah, this is awesome, right? And you'd go in there and you'd go, it is not good for man to dwell alone. <laughs> so... Most of the time, that is, the, that is very true. And God has gone through creation, hasn't he? And he's like, it's good, it's good, it's awesome, it's phenomenal. And then he looks at Adam and he's like, we got a problem here. It is not good for this guy to dwell alone. I'll make him a helper that is comparable to him. I'm going to design a, a companion for him. Now, why is this a lesson in marriage? Because you have to be fully convinced that it's not for good for you to dwell alone. For us as men to realize I'm better off with my wife than I am all by myself. And sometimes men and women fail to realize that even though they're married. Like we get married, but we want to hold on to our single life. And we're actually back here in our minds going, you know, I was kind of better off by myself. Liar, you are not better off by yourself. You know, and I think, ladies, it's also true. It's not good for you to dwell alone. That's why God designed marriage. Yes, it's exemplified in men. We see them living out in their, their men cave. But God's design was companionship. And he says, I want Adam and Eve to be together in this. And God then creates Eve. And he gives a title to Eve here. And he says, a helper comparable to him. So to Adam, he was to be that worker and that protector and that spiritual leader. And then to Eve, she was to be a helper completer. She was to come alongside and be able to to help Adam and help him be able to succeed in this task of taking care of, of the garden. And that then goes into the identity in which God has designed women Biblical womanhood, to be able to to come alongside of her man and help out in such an incredible way that it brings completion, a helper completer. We know that men and women together bear the image of God. We learned that last week. As we come together, male and female, male and female bears the image of God. Who else has the title of helper inside of the Trinity? The Holy Spirit. Jesus said that the Holy Spirit is the helper. And so ladies, as as you help and you fulfill that role, that God-given role, it points to the work of the Holy Spirit. 
So out of the ground, the Lord formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. Why is God doing this? Well, he's showing the genius that's in Adam, that Adam has the ability to be able to name all of these different animals. When we think of Adam, sometimes we go, man, he was a miserable failure. Look at his sin and look at Eve's sin. But they were the best that humankind had to offer. And he's able to name all of these animals. Do you ever get a a new dog or a new cat or a new fish? You're like, what do we name this thing? Huh, this is so hard. Fluffy, let's name this thing Fluffy, right? Trying to come up with a good name for for your dog. There's so much pressure when you name your kids, and they're going to be stuck with that for the rest of their lives, right? Who's going to make fun of them because of this name that I have given to them? Sometimes I meet people, and I'm like, what were your parents thinking? They actually named you that? Like, didn't they realize, you know? So here's Adam, and he's able to name all of these animals. Genius. But God is showing him his need for a spouse. Because as he's looking at this, he's seeing male and female, male and female, being able to be fruitful and multiply. And he's like, there's no helper that's comparable to me in this. God is confirming and revealing it's not good for you to dwell alone. And many times if God is preparing you for marriage, he's going to take you through a process where he's showing you your need for your spouse. So you know God was right that it wasn't good for me to dwell alone. And the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam and he slept and took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into woman, and he brought her to the man. So the second lesson that we see in marriage is that we do have God-given roles inside of marriage. God takes Adam's rib, and from that rib, he's then able to create Eve. Adam's in this deep sleep, When he wakes up, this wonderful surprise of woman, of Eve, being presented to him. Now, we have to stop and look at God's narrative and go, God, why did you do it this way? You could have created Adam and Eve at the exact same time, in the exact same way. But Adam was created first, then Eve was created, and in two different ways. God breathed into Adam but then created Eve out of Adam's rib. And this is where we look at Ephesians 5 and 1 Timothy 2. You can just write down those two sections of scripture. Ephesians 5 and 1 Timothy 2, where God gives roles inside of marriage. And to the husband, the role is to love their wife as Christ loves the church. That's the way that God is calling us to love and serve our spouses. And then wives, you're to submit to your husbands even as Christ submits, even as the church submits to Christ. And the analogy is, is that Christ is the head of the church and the husband is the head over you. He's the spiritual authority. 
And so from the very beginning, going back to creation, God set it up this way. He designed it this way, and he's showing us that in the way that he created Adam and Eve. And then in 1 Timothy 2, going into 1 Timothy 3, God lays out how he wants his church to be conducted. And he calls men to be pastors and elders. And it's very specific when you're reading the text that he's calling men to take that role of the spiritual authority inside of the church. And the reason why in 1 Timothy 2 is it says that Adam was created before Eve. It goes all the way back to creation that when God designed things, he designed men and women and he designed marriage and leadership inside of the church with roles and responsibilities. Now, why do I take so much time to explain this? Because if we're going through marriage and we're going through church life and we don't understand the roles that God has put together, we're fighting against God's design. This is the way God made it. God really does want husbands to lead in a Christ-centered servant type of way, laying down their life for their bride. God wants men to be pastors and elders and lead spiritually inside of the church. Wants women to submit to their husbands, be that helper completer to, to their husbands. And in that, there's this beautiful design in which God is glorified. But if we don't understand his, the roles that he's given, then we're fighting against it. So if you are married, to stop and consider and go, have I accepted the role that God has given? Men, have I accepted that God is calling me to be the leader in my marriage and, and in my family? Ladies, to go, have I allowed my husband to be able to be the leader inside of the marriage? It's like my big fat Greek wedding. Remember the discussion that's happening with the older couple and their daughter and, you know, the wife says, you know, yeah, sure, dad's the head, but I'm the neck and I can turn him wherever I want, right? <laughs> and a lot of times that's kind of our understanding of this whole thing. Like, oh yeah, I'm the leader, but basically I just do whatever my wife wants, you know? And the wife's like, yeah, he's the leader, but pretty much he, he does whatever I want. So how does this really work out practically? is you want to be seeking decisions together through God's word. This isn't some heavy-handed type of leadership. This isn't some type of leadership where the wife doesn't have any input. If, if that's your interpretation of this, men, you're stupid, right? If, if you don't value your wife's input, like, why in the heck did you marry her? Like, I don't understand. So it's coming to this place of saying, what does God's word say? What's the right decision for us to, to be able to make? Let's get some godly counsel from other people that we respect. And you put all that thing into the washing machine. You put it in the mix. And oftentimes you come out with a decision that you're in agreement with. You're like, oh, yes, this is God's decision for us. But those few times that maybe you can't come to an agreement after going through that process, how do you move forward? Men, you lead. You say, you know, what? I've got to make a decision here. And this is what I really feel best according to the scriptures and everything that we've gone through. And then wives, you say, you know, I'm going to let you make the decision and I trust you. I love it, but I hate it when my wife does that to me and she's so good at it. Amber's so good at it. She goes, you decide. And I'm like, no, I don't want to decide, right? That means I'm really going to have to be a leader. That means I'm really going to have to sort this, this whole thing out and make a decision. All that to be said, 
God has given us roles inside of marriage. Verse 22. Then the rib which the Lord had taken from him, he made into woman, and he brought her to the man. Another action of God. And I can just picture a loving father going, all right, I'm going to blow your minds right now. Adam, I'm just going to blow your mind. Eve, I'm going to blow your mind. I'm going to give the institution of marriage. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Adam's completely blown away. I mean, the, the scriptures here almost don't do this justice. You have to picture the kind of excitement with Adam. And he's like, God, you rock. This is amazing, your provision that you have provided Eve for me. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She's called woman because she's taken out of man. You have man, ish in the Hebrew, and then woman, isha, out of man. She was literally created out of man. Verse 24, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The third lesson in marriage is leave and cleave. Married folks, preparing to be married, hoping to be married at some point in your life, if you get married or you are married, the greatest human relationship is your spouse. Leave and cleave. You have to leave and able to cleave. Adam and Eve had no in-laws. That's why their relationship was so peaceful. <laughs> right? Plus, they had no prior boyfriends or no prior girlfriends, right? There was none of that to, to be able to, to argue about. So why does God state this? Why does he put that in there? Because he's preparing the way for all future marriages. You're raised with your parents, maybe raised by a single parent, but you leave the parental unit to be able to cleave to each other. Practically, you cut the cord of dependency in every area, spiritually, physically, emotionally, financially, and you say, the way that I depended upon my parents, I'm now depending upon my spouse. So does this mean that you don't ever talk to your parents, that you don't have anything to do with your parents, that it's never appropriate to be able to receive their financial help? No. Once you get the priorities set straight, and you have appropriately cut that cord of dependence and cleave to your spouse, you then can have the appropriate level with the parents, but it's very clear in the mind of your spouse, you are number one, and my parents are now secondary. I'm called to honor my parents, but you have that greatest place in my life. This also applies in relationship with children. It also applies with relationship with close friends. There should be no question who's the greatest human relationship in your life if you're married. Hands down. It's your spouse. And you choose that. And you choose that the day you get married and you keep choosing it. You're saying, I'm leaving to be able to cleave. What does this work out to in daily life? You get a raise, what do you do? Text mom and dad, bzz, gong. You first text your spouse and you're like, I got a raise, right? Then you text mom and dad and say, hey, I got a raise. Praise God, isn't God good? You get in a fight, what do you do? Call mom, man, my husband, I can't believe it. You do not do that, right? You call your husband and you work it out. 
And then after you've talked with your spouse, you say, hey, could we get prayer from mom and dad? Yeah, I think we need a lot of prayer from mom and dad, right? You get the idea. So as we leave, then we're able to cleave. The word cleave, it literally means to adhere like glue. You adhere like glue. You hold on to each other above all else. To say we are now husband and wife and we are committed to each other. We're cleaving to one another. And as we cleave to one another, they shall become one flesh. And this is the fourth lesson about marriage is we're one flesh. We're one flesh. This is the mystery of marriage that you have two people that are very much individuals. They get married and in God's sight, they're one. And this is why it's the greatest human relationship. And Ephesians 5 tells us that this union between a husband and a wife, it speaks of the greater union between Christ and the church. The oneness that we have with our spouse is a small taste of the oneness that we have with Christ. We even have a greater oneness with Christ than we do with our spouse. And that's amazing. And that's mind-blowing that the Christian marriage could point to Christ and the church. But how does this help out in marriage? Because if you understand that you're one flesh, it affects the way that you live. Instead of just making decisions for me, I have to stop and consider, okay, this is Amber and I together. How does this affect us? See the difference? So even the simplest things of, hey, I'd like to go work out at the gym. Well, how does that affect your spouse? What are their expectations for the evening? It may be good to check in with them and say, hey, how do you feel about if I go to the gym tonight and work out? Never works out too well if you know, hey, hey, babe, guess what? Going to the gym, be home at 10, love you, bye, right? What does that communicate? It doesn't communicate one flesh. Financially, how do you live in that unity of one flesh? Uh, Hey, babe, I was checking out Craigslist. Great deal on some truck parts. So just bought them. They're in the garage, and you're going to love them, right? That's not a one flesh decision, especially if it wasn't in the budget, right? A one flesh decision is to be able to say, Hey, can we afford this? Is this the right time? Does it fit into the family schedule? Because I know as soon as I want to buy them, I'm going to want to put them on the truck, right? And to be able to really stop and consider, you might go, it's only 20 bucks. Don't I have freedom to just be able to go blow 20 bucks? Maybe not. If your budget's that tight and it's going to put stress on the family, you got to be talking together because it's a one flesh experience. That unity is so important to start thinking in one flesh instead of thinking in individuals. I think this is really hard for us because we really value individualism in our culture. So we fight against this when it comes to the one flesh experience. Verse 25, and they were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. Number five, the lesson in marriage. Sex is great in marriage. Write that down. I got all your guys' attention after 45 minutes. There it is. <laughs> so they leave and they cleave. They enjoy sexual intimacy. And it's exactly what God had created. I want you to hear this for just a moment. Is I think most of the time, even inside of the church, the message that we're hearing about sex is all the things that are forbidden. You know 
pornography is bad. You know what it does and how it, it damages marriage. You know that sex outside of marriage is bad. That adultery destroys marriages. We talk about the gravity of sexual sin. But do you know how good God intended for sex to be inside a marriage, right? And we have to get back to God's design for sexuality and God's design for sex. And what's your attitude toward sex as a married couple? Satan's really tricky. Before you're married, what does he try to do? Get you into bed, right? And then as soon as you're married, he wants to keep you out of bed with your spouse. Because this is a good thing in marriage. This is honorable inside of marriage. It glorifies God. It's life-giving. It's healthy inside of your marriage. But because the world has perverted sex so badly, and unfortunately sometimes abuse enters in, in a person's life, that now all of a sudden they're in marriage and they get the green light from God saying, yeah, have sex. And they're like, wait a second, I thought this was bad. I thought this was forbidden. Outside of marriage it is. But inside of marriage, it's exactly what the Lord would intend. And I would imagine that there's some healing that God wants to do in this area inside of sexual intimacy with married couples. That this is an area that you don't want to neglect. And as odd as this may sound, this is an area you want to pray about before God and ask that God would bless your sexual intimacy. That God would help you to see it the way he intended it. And that you wouldn't get robbed by any worldly perversion that has taken place. Because it's a gift, gift from the Lord. And we see Adam and Eve enjoying that gift from the Lord. As we share about the message of sex, we want to share God's good plan with people. When we share with our kids and our teens, you know, the only thing that they hear about sex is sex is bad. Well, no, it's not. Inside a marriage, it's wonderful. Inside a marriage, it was exactly God's plan, and it, it's honorable. And to start thinking about sexual sin of what it does to God's design— this is God's design. It's wonderful. It's honorable. It's good inside of marriage. So tonight we've seen God's actions. God's provision through rest, through watering, through breathing life into Adam. He planted, he commanded, he brought Eve. And we also see our needs and our identity. Our need for rest, being formed by God. This genuine choice to be able to serve God, the knowledge the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, where we have the opportunity to choose to love God or disobey God, the gift of marriage, biblical manhood, and womanhood. But you know what, guys? As I was thinking about this message and praying about it tonight, knowing the information is not enough. I couldn't help but just observe tonight as families came in and got their kids checked into children's ministry and tried to make their way into to, to sanctuary. And it's hard. Like, when, there's a part of Wednesday nights, it's like, what are we all doing here? We're half crazy, right? It's like having a long day at work and with kids, and then they got even more work at Awana, and we're all coming in. <laughs> you know, the coffee, we're just drinking the coffee, and we're like, oh, man, this is, this is so hard, right? 
hearing about what biblical manhood is is not going to make me a better man biblically, unfortunately. Ladies, hearing about biblical womanhood in and of itself is not going to cut it. Hearing lessons on marriage is not going to cut it. We need Jesus. And thankfully, we have Jesus. If you trust Jesus as your Savior, he is joined to you even a greater way than for those that, that are married to their spouse. He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. And to be able to look to Jesus where Jesus says, I am the way. I'm the way. It's the reality of Christ in our lives and our relationship with him where he's able to lead us in these things. Without Christ, we have no hope. But with Christ, we have living hope, don't we? And we turn to Jesus and say, Jesus, would you help me to be able to grow inside of these things? If you're single, may God meet you in your singleness, give you contentment in your singleness, to ultimately see that marriage points to our relationship with Christ. So church, let's stand together and let's pray. Jesus, we do express our great need for you. And as we read about your design, we see that it's beautiful. We see that it's wonderful. We thank you for the gift of marriage. But yet we fall short. We fall short in these roles that you have given to us. So Lord, even as we take communion, would you remind us of your great love for us? Jesus, your sacrifice for us. Jesus, you're the way. Would you help us to be able to live these things out? Would you bring life into marriage where there's death? Lord, would you bring healing where there's been damage due to sexual sin? God, in areas that we think are beyond your redemption, would you bring tremendous work of redemption? So God, we look to you. We pray that you would bless this time of communion. In Jesus' name, amen.